Judges chapter 10, beginning verse 17, that's page 270 if you're using a pew Bible. We've come to the next judge in our series through this book. It's uh, Jephthah. We'll be looking at Jephthah over the next few weeks. We're going to break up his story a little bit. But we're going to consider today his rise to power and what that tells us, not only about him, but about the state of Israel at that time and God's dealing with them. But as we turn to the passage, I want to remind you a little of the context here. We saw last week Israel has just fallen into some very serious idolatry yet again. And so, following the cycle that we've seen all throughout the book, yet again, God delivers them over to judgment. And yet again, they cry out, Lord, we can't take this, please help us. But this time, as we saw in chapter 10, things are different. This time, when they cry out, the Lord says in verse 13, this has gone far enough. I will save you no more. And with that... We ended last week, verse 16, where God had become impatient over the misery of Israel. And that's where we're picking up today, and that's all important as we, uh, all important to remember as we come to the story of Jephthah, as we'll soon see. This is the context in which the next phase of this narrative then opens up. So Judges chapter 10, verse 17, and we're going to read down through uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 11. Let us give our attention, let us give reverence to God speaking to us through His Word. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, and they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, For you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me? And drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that your spirit would be poured out through the open and public proclamation of your word. 
We pray that our hearts and our lives would be changed. We pray that Christ's church would be united in holiness, that the glory of God may radiate out from us through the ministry of your word in the midst of your people, through the power of the Spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. It was the great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, who very famously wrote that the nature of man is a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart is an idol factory, he said. And what he meant is that the inclination of our hearts are so full of pride, so full of self-love, that in our sinfulness we constantly fashion false gods according to our own desires. In fact, Calvin goes on to argue there in his Institutes that we remain uneasy. He says, our flesh remains uneasy until we have fabricated a false god in order to find comfort in them. In this sense, as we look at idolatry, idolatry is not just a matter of ancient mythology. But idolatry is the natural inclination of fallen humanity, no matter when or where we may live. I'll bring this up because it's helpful to us as we try to understand Israel's repeated fall into idolatry throughout this book. Something we may struggle to understand if we don't grasp truly the nature of what idolatry really is. Last week we saw Israel fell into idolatry yet again. They adopted any and every other god that they could find. We read in 10.6 that their fall away from Yahweh and into idolatry was the worst and most comprehensive fall into idolatry yet. And yet, at the end of our passage last week, in verse 16, after God punishes them, we read that they apparently repented. We read, they put away the foreign gods and served the Lord. And I noted last week, this is the first and the only instance of repentance in the book of Judges. But as we now turn to this next episode, and this next judge, How we understand this apparent repentance becomes critical to understanding what follows. Has Israel truly turned away from their idolatry? That's the question that the author wants us to wrestle with as we see what happens next. So how then are we to answer this? Well, much like in our day, We might be tempted to think that just because Israel was not bowing down to a statue, that just because Israel was outwardly going through the motions of serving the Lord, just because this was happening does not mean that the seed of idolatry has been rooted out of their hearts and removed. You see, that's what's so insidious about idolatry. That's what's so deceiving about it. So often we look at idolatry as just an obvious thing, bowing down to a piece of wood, right? Sometimes we look at idolatry as if, or idols, as if it's necessarily bad things. 
right? These obvious evils and vices and false gods around us. But that's not always the case. And in fact, in our day, it's hardly ever the case. You know, rather, it's the greater the good, the more likely we are to exalt it and fashion it according to our own likeness and look to it to serve as our deepest source of hope and comfort. So I good things in life, like our career, it's a good thing, provision and comfort, family, loved ones. These very good things often become some of the greatest idols of our hearts. In the very same way, turning something good into an idol, in the very same way we can also take the one true and living God and refashion Him into an idol as well. And that's what we're seeing with Israel in this text today. I argued last week that Israel's repentance was not genuine. They were approaching God in a transactional way. We'll do this, now you do this. They were desperate. They were suffering. But their ultimate concern their ultimate comfort, their ultimate love, their ultimate desire, their ultimate God was their own comfort. And they were simply using the Lord to get what they really wanted. Their hearts were idle factories. And what they ended up doing is not just turning to all of the false gods around them, but they ended up refashioning Yahweh Himself as an idol, and treating him as if he was just another one of the pagan deities around them. That's why at the end of verse 13, the Lord says in chapter 10, I will deliver you no more. Because of their idolatry, because they were still treating Yahweh as an idol, God left them to their own devices, and really from this point to the end of the book, Yahweh slowly recedes into the background, and only disaster awaits. So this is the context in which we are to approach the story of Jephthah today, this next judge and this next Savior of Israel. Yes, God's mercies are still in the background here, but ultimately... This only serves to highlight the sin and the idolatry that's still simmering under the surface that still hasn't been dealt with. As even in their dealings with their covenant Lord Yahweh, Israel treats Him like He's just another idol. Something else is needed in order to fix the situation, the ultimate predicament that Israel keeps finding herself in. So three things today as we open this up. And remember, we're looking at the rise of Jephthah to save the deliverer, to save Israel. Three things. The first is this. For where does our help come? Our help comes from the Lord. From where does our help come? Our help comes from the Lord. The story of Jephthah begins here in verse 17 and 18. The Ammonites are on the war path. 
They are planning a major offensive against Israel, and obviously Israel begins to panic because they don't have a leader. To understand the situation here, just think about, you know, there is a massive amount of troops who are gathering outside of your city, and all they want to do is slaughter your men, steal your possessions, burn your homes, and carry off your women. And facing this imminent threat, Israel's like, we have nobody who is fit to organize troops and mount a defensive. So obviously, they're in a bit of a panic. So, in verse 18, the people of Israel, what did they do? They came together and they said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Think about this. Who will fight for us? Does that sound familiar? Who will fight for us? It should sound familiar because that is the opening line of the book of Judges. Chapter 1, verse 1. Joshua dies. The leaders of Israel ask, Who will now lead us to fight the Canaanites? However, though, I hope you notice that even though the question might be the same, the circumstances are far different. And here, really... My, oh, my, the tables have turned. There, in chapter 1, verse 1, who will lead and go fight for us, Israel was on the offensive. But here they're on the defensive. There they were unified as a nation. Here they're confused. And Gilead seems to be taking charge here. There they're looking for the right kind of leader, one that ultimately comes from the tribe of Judah, as the Lord made very clear. But here, they're seemingly willing to take anybody. Anybody who's willing to fight. Anyone who's willing to go to war as if this alone qualifies a man for the job. But most importantly, you know what the difference is? In chapter 1, verse 1, they're asking Yahweh who shall lead for us. But here, they're just asking one another. The similarities between the opening of the book and here in chapter 10 really demonstrate to us just how far Israel has fallen since the beginning of this book. Here at this point, the people of Israel never even consult the Lord. They're not even asking Him anymore. Perhaps they think that He's powerless to help. Perhaps they think He's unwilling to listen. Perhaps they want, really, to choose the kind of leader that they would like for themselves. Regardless of why they don't ask, the lack of asking Him, the lack of prayer, is but a symptom of idolatry. They may want the Lord to deliver them, but they don't trust His power or His ways in doing so. Or perhaps they don't want the kind of leader that he would put over them. A leader who will not just deal with all their problems out there, but will deal with their problems in here as well. Putting them through that painful detox of removing the idolatry within. Brother, you should see here how easy it is for us to fall into the very same things. A lack of prayer is a symptom of a deeper problem, the deeper problem of idolatry. 
the lack of prayer in your life is a symptom of idolatry. We are relying on things as our de facto God, other than God. When we are in need, we look to the things of this world to provide that comfort or that peace or that satisfaction or that hope or that deliverance rather than the Lord. How often, as we look at our lives, do we also neglect to seek the Lord's will in times of need? How often is our greatest source of of trust and comfort lie in what we can do in our own strength? How often do we make decisions on our own in life? And then just, oh, we ask God to bless them. You know? We make the decision and then to, to ease our conscience, ask the Lord to bless it. Rather than searching out His wisdom. Rather than going to those sources of counsel and correction that He's given us. His Word and and those He's put around us. Rather than going to them and accepting the Lord's wisdom even if it crosses our own. How often do we too want the Lord to deliver us and to give us what we want, but we want it done our way. We want it done on our timing, and we certainly don't want to go through the painful detox of the Lord working a repentance in our hearts and removing those idols from us. We ought to see right here, by the negative example of Israel, that our only true and ultimate hope comes from the Lord. And when we put hope in something else, even good things, we are walking that path of idolatry. But the Lord calls us to place Him as most important, as first in every area of our lives. Because our sinful tendency is always going to grasp at what we really want if it's left up to us. And our sinful tendency is to grasp what we really want, but convince ourselves that what we're really doing is worshiping the Lord. When in reality, we fashioned the Lord after our own image. Israel is in trouble. Because of remaining idolatry, they're relying on other things for help rather than seeing that their hope comes only from the Lord. What happens next then? Well, the plot actually is suspended uh, suspended for a moment here in verses 1 through 3 as we get kind of a flashback as the primary character is now introduced into the narrative. So secondly, I want you to see that God frequently delivers His people in a way that's least expected. God frequently delivers His people in a way that's least expected. Eleven verse one opens with this question of leadership hanging in the balance. But Jephthah is now introduced as a mighty warrior from the tribe of Gilead. This, of course, is the same way that Gideon was introduced a few chapters ago, coming from the very same tribe as well. And so immediately, the reader's expectations are set pretty high. Is this another Gideon? 
But, of course, the tension then is introduced into the narrative. For the author then tells us that he was a son, the son, of a prostitute. Well, needless to say, this is not an ideal leader right away. In fact, this echoes Abimelech, not Gideon. Abimelech had questionable origins as well on his mother's side. And so this immediately presents a problem. The problem is, because of his questionable origins, his half-brothers jump at the opportunity to pad their own pockets. Perhaps they made the argument that because he was the son of a prostitute, that his father, the true identity of his father couldn't really be verified Regardless of the reason, they wanted to pad their own pockets, and so they turn against him, and they disinherit him, and they force him into exile. Here, this act of disinheritance um, would have required official legal action. This is important, because we'll see in a moment that Jephthah charges the elders of Gilead with participating in this crime. But what happens when you're disinherited? Well, your, your livelihood is taken away from you. And you're put into exile, and as we see, he flees for his life, and all he can do really is kind of plunder for a living. He's a wanderer, like Cain. And in verse 3, we read that worthless fellows collected around him and went out with him. He's got to sustain himself, and there's these other worthless characters, which literally in the Hebrew is like purposeless. They have no inheritance, they have no vocation, they have, they're going nowhere in life, they're drifters. And they gather together and they plunder, you know, they're pirates in a sense, in order to support themselves. Here, this is the, the classic plot line, right, of uh, the exceptionally gifted kid, uh, who's treated ill by society, and then so he turns and he uses his gifts and talents uh, to make trouble instead, right? Before he's called back home. It's a pretty standard narrative plot line here. But frighteningly, this language of worthless fellows gathering around him is the very same language that's used of Abimelech in the previous chapter, where he gathered these men around him and used them to help him slaughter his 70 brothers. So what's really going on here? The reader legitimately doesn't know what to expect. Is this guy like Moses, the very gifted leader who's forced out into exile before the exodus? Or is this like the evil Abimelech? who brought destruction and nearly brought all-out civil war upon the nation. Well, in verse 3, I think we get a clue here as we consider where it is that Jephthah fled to. We read that he fled and he lived in the land of Tov. Literally, Tov is the Hebrew word for good. That's what it means. And this is key because if you remember the very last thing that Israel said to Yahweh back in chapter 10, verse 15. They said, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Good. Tov. The very same word. So being the son of a prostitute was a matter of great shame on the culture, in that culture. Being disinherited and 
forced down into exile would have meant that he's on nobody's radar as, you know, possibly contributing anything positive to the nation. But here, with this subtle play on words, we see Yahweh's working behind the scenes. Even despite the great sinfulness in the land, Yephthah is being prepared to deliver Israel from the land of Tov. God is working good for his people. And this brings us back to really how we concluded last week. Israel's hope, your hope, my hope, is not in the sincerity of our repentance. We don't have faith in faith. We don't have faith in our repentance, as if that makes us right with God in and of itself. No, our hope, their hope, lies in the nature of God, in the compassion of God, in the mercy of God. God is merciful because of who He is, not because of who we are. And that's what we see here because God delights to deliver His people in in ways that we would least expect, using leaders that we would least expect, those weak and worthless in the eyes of the world. And even when, when Israel is heading full steam ahead down the path of idolatry, He shows mercy. And He's preparing a man to lead them out and deliver His people. This should encourage us not to grow weary when it seems as though God is absent. As it, it seems like He is not doing anything and He doesn't notice our predicament. This should give us great encouragement to see how the Lord oftentimes is working in ways that we would least expect. Even when the deck seems entirely stacked against Him. Well, this little parenthesis in our story introduces Jephthah, and it paves the way now for the main event. So thirdly here, just put this under the heading of where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This third scene, this closing of the narrative, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. After Jephthah is introduced, the shooting then starts. Verse 4. The Ammonites made war with Israel, and Israel gets desperate. And so they go to the land of Tov, and they desperately try to convince him to come back and save them. I just thought it was interesting here. Isn't it striking how God always seems to drive us to that point of utter despair before salvation comes? You know? Like he brings Israel to the end. This is the last possible moment because war has started. And in desperation they go. And that's normally how God works when he's removing idols from us. He brings us to the point of utter despair so that we reach out and we rest upon him and his deliverer. At this point, though, um, no doubt, Yephthah's reputation precedes him. So the elders go to him in verse 6. They know he's a mighty man, right? And they say, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. What's clear about this is the emphasis is on we will fight. We will fight the Ammonites. So come fight with us. And then this request here, come be our leader, refers to something more like a a, a military leader, like a general, a, a field commander for the troops. 
which of course was something that was very dangerous. And perhaps they thought, you know, being in exile, that he would be flattered. Oh, here's my chance to get back into society and not be a wanderer and a scavenger anymore. Of course, they get more than they bargained for with Jephthah. He's not just going to give up his nice life in exile to go and risk his life for the people that hate him. So he responds in verse 7, Did you not hate me? Did you not drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? You see, he sees that they're just trying to use him. He sees that they don't really care for him. They hated him. They put him to ex- into exile. He sees that they're just desperate to save their own skin. And so they're trying to strike a deal. Does all this sound familiar? We'll come back to that in a moment. Well, the elders get the picture. And so they up the ante a little bit in verse 8. They reply and they say, That's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. You see, their desperation is clear here because of their upping the ante. You know, it shouldn't be overlooked, you know. They're, they're desperate. They'll do anything as it sense, in, in one sense, but they'll do anything except what? Actually inquire of the Lord. And rely upon his wisdom. They're still trying to work out things in their own power. In their desperation, they're trying to strike a deal. And so they say to him, If you fight, we'll make you head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They use a different word here. Head, different than they used before. Leader. This is more than just a leader. This is more like a permanent tribal chief. This is a position that would come with great power and glory and wealth. But also, very subtly, they change the emphasis here. And it's put on Jephthah that he would fight. They backed off a little bit from we will fight, and they put it on him. They're saying, okay, if you really want to be our head, we'll give you full control, but you've got to earn it. You've got to go and win that battle yourself. And of course, that sounds like a great deal to Yephthah. The offer of this much power is just too much for him to pass up. And so he says in verse 9, If the Lord gives them over to me, I'll be your head. He puts your head in the emphatic position in the uh, Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew uh, original. He says, the Lord giving them to me, he says. Highlighting how he's going to do this without their help. Okay, you want it? That's how you want it? I will be your head. And I'm underlining that. And I will win this battle because the Lord will give them into my hand, he says. This is, in some sense, a lust for power. He wants that control and he's willing to go out and fight for it. But it's in these last two verses that we really see what's going on here. And it's in these last two verses that finally Yahweh enters the scene. Yephthah invokes the name of the Lord in verse 9, if the Lord gives him over to me. But then in verse 10 and 11, we see that Yahweh is called as a witness between them. And then they ratify this in some sort of formal agreement in verse 11, when they spoke before the Lord at Mizpah. But really, the reality is here, 
Does Yahweh really enter the scene? In truth, I think it's better to say that this is really nothing more than a token acknowledgement of the Lord. The truth is, Yahweh is a silent observer in all of this. They never consult Him. They never consider the question of what He would have them do. They never even discuss whether Yephthah is the right kind of leader. No, instead, Yephthah himself just uses Yahweh as a trump card in his negotiation. I'm going to invoke this name so that you're, now you really got to you know, give me what I ask if I win this battle. He uses the name of the Lord to, to secure the deal. And really, commentators have noted that he's entirely presumptuous here. He's presumptuous in assuming that the Lord uh, will give the Ammonites into his hand. This is a, a foolish and rash kind of vow. Something that will be paralleled and echoed at the end of the story. when He'll make another rash vow and have to sacrifice his own daughter. We'll see that next week. But if Jephthah is using Yahweh as a bargaining tool, the leaders of the nation are no better either. We read in verse 11 that the people made him their head and leader over them. Before the battle, they anoint him as their leader with no question to his qualifications. Before he'd ever won the battle, it's just a matter of convenience, just like with Abimelech. Israel has learned nothing. All of God's chastening, all of that horrible episode with Abimelech has fallen on deaf ears. Nothing has changed. And what they do ultimately is they pick a leader, one who is in their own image. A leader who is mighty and strong. A leader who is out for own personal glory. A leader who is cunning and selfish and willing to strike a deal. They make this negotiation with him. They make the decision themselves. And they clothe it in biblical language, invoking his name as if that makes everything okay. This is how they are essentially taking the Lord's name in vain. They've turned Yahweh into their own idol. They're using Him to secure what they really want. And yet, even in light of this, in God's grace and His mercy, He uses Yephthah to deliver them from the Ammonites, as we see, we'll see next week. Where Israel's sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But to bring this all home to you, I want to draw your attention to how this section, this interaction between Yephthah and the leaders of Israel, it parallels the previous interaction between Israel and Yahweh that we looked at last week. I hinted at that, hinted at that a few minutes ago. Last week, beginning in 10 verse 6, Israel rejected Yahweh. And here, Israel rejects Yephthah, by sending him into exile. Then, in 10.10, Israel finds herself in this desperate situation. They can't fix themselves, so they cry out to God for help. Well, here the same thing happens. Israel goes and cries out to Yephthah as well. 
Then in chapter 10, verse 11, Yahweh rebuffs their appeal to help. I will save you no more, he says in verse 13. While here, Yephthah rebuffs their initial appeal as well. There, Israel then repents of their rejection of Yahweh in verse 15. Just like here, the elders of Galid repent of their rejection of Yephthah. There, in 10, verse 16, the Israels put away their false gods and serve the Lord, while here they then agree to make Yephthah their leader. The parallels here are striking, and they're intentional. The author wants us to see this interaction with, with Yephthah is but a living parable of Israel's relationship with their Lord. In other words, the writer wants us to see how strained Israel's relationship was with their Lord as they approach Him at the bargaining table. The writer wants us to see that the repentance of Israel in chapter 10 was not genuine. Just like with Jephthah, Israel is willing to adopt a change of strategy when things go bad. But this is far different than a change of heart. It's insincere. It's a survival strategy. It's just an attempt to save their own skin and get what they really want. Their own comfort and security. All of this. This negotiation, this apparent change of heart, this invoking the Lord's name, all of this really just serves to illustrate how they're treating Yahweh as one of their idols. They're treating Him as if He can be negotiated with, like with Yephthah. As if the relationship with their covenant Lord was transactional. And this, brethren, is where it hits home to us, every one of us here today as well. Our hearts are idol factories. We are all prone to turn good things into idols, even the one true and living God, into our own personal idol. When we presume upon the Lord, when we treat Him as if He can be negotiated with, well, I'll do this, Lord, if you'll do this in, the, in my life. Well, I'll obey you here if you promise to bless me here. Okay, I'll repent. Does that mean that you're going to fix my circumstances now? When we do this, we're treating the Lord as an idol. When we call upon the Lord, only when we're in a place of desperation... And we want something else when we insist then that it be done in our way, in our timing. When we despise the Savior that the Lord has raised up for us, we're treating the Lord as an idol. We're treating the Lord as a false God who can be appeased by our own efforts, appeased by our own good works, can be approached in a transactional way. I'll do this, you do that. We ought to see here how dangerous it is to come into this place and invoke the Lord's name if our hearts are far from Him. We ought to see the danger of coming into this place, going through the motions, singing the songs, doing the prayer of confession, while really and truly we just want the good life. 
Really and truly, our hearts are set upon Him. Really and truly, we're using Him to get what we really want. Yet, in despite of all this sinfulness and idolatry, there is good news here, even as it comes as a correction to us and a warning against going through the motions in the name of God. The good news comes back to the reality is that our deliverance is not based upon who we are. It's based upon who He is. As merciful and gracious and forgiving. Despite all of this sin, despite the imperfection of Yetha, as we will see next week, the Lord uses Him to deliver Israel. He's even mentioned in Hebrews 11 as an example of true faith. And in the very same way, although Israel's idolatry persisted, many years later, Israel was again finding herself under the judgment of God, was again in exile, not just their leader, but the nation. And the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36.25, speaks of a coming day. A day when the Lord will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That's the promise of the new covenant. That strikes at the ultimate problem in the book of Judges. That looks to the day when the accomplishment the full accomplishment of Israel's deliverer and the salvation that he brings will come to fruition. This is what the book of Judges could only anticipate. This is what, as we read this story, our eyes and our hearts should jump towards. And how has God done this? How has He cleansed His people from their idols? Because there came another man from the land of Tov, from the Father's side. And he came to this place. There came another man who, coming down from heaven, was born of a virgin. And these supernatural circumstances of his birth were so scandalous that some of the Jewish leaders accused him of being born of fornication. Just like Yephthah. And there came another man who, when he was grown, was uh, and, and, and a man, when he, when he was um, um, old and, and, and grew up, he was forced out into exile for 40 days and 40 nights, only then to return and save Israel. There's another man who, at the height of his earthly power, came into contact with the Jewish leaders. And they tried to negotiate with him. We demand signs. We demand wonders. Give us this bread from heaven always. Fill our bellies. Release us from Roman oppression. But unlike Jephthah, this man cannot be negotiated with. They turned on him when he refused to meet their felt needs because his concern was their greater problem. The problem of their hearts, the idolatry within, and the detox that's necessary, as it were, to rid God's people from her idols. 
This is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Jephthah had to be persuaded to go and fight for Israel. Jesus came willingly. Well, Jephthah risked his life to save Israel. Jesus gave his life entirely and sacrificed it for his people. And while Jephthah did conquer and win back his inheritance, ultimately he died. And he left Israel no better off than before. But Jesus has obtained an inheritance that is greater than this. Because the victory He won is eternal. And He has secured for us His heavenly home, our heavenly home, in His presence that will never fade away. Brethren, let us learn once again from this book that every deliverance that God works for His people is to prepare us and to point us to that greater deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the Scriptures speak of Him. And let us also see that just as Israel's treatment of Jephthah mirrors their own treatment of God, the way that you treat Jesus Christ mirrors your relationship with God as well. Because He is the only way, the truth, and the life. In fact, if I could one-up that a little bit, the way that you treat His church, the body of Christ on earth, mirrors and reflects what you really think of Him. Jesus Christ is that key to your inheritance. He is that leader that we need to deliver us from the looming destruction. But He can't be negotiated with. You cannot appease Him by bringing anything to the table. The Scriptures call us to come before Him with that empty hand of faith. To trust Him for His deliverance. To trust in Him as as our sole deliverer. To trust in His wisdom. To trust in His will. To trust in His ways. And to come to Him and say, Lord, You have conquered. You have ascended. You are head and ruler over me. Wherever You lead, I go. Whatever You command, I do. Whatever You require, I give. You are my head. You are my leader. You are my Lord. There is no other way. Brethren, the story serves to highlight just how deceptive and insidious sin and idolatry is. But it also highlights the grace of our Lord. And it calls us to look to our ultimate deliverer. Let me exhort you today to see Jesus Christ and what He is calling you here in this text. To bow the knee before Him. And to come to Him and say, You are Lord, I am not. Thy will be done. May God give us the grace by His Spirit to believe and receive these words today. Let's pray.